Good morning. That was very vocal of you. <laughs> I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. We are excited that you're here today. If this is your first time, we uh, typically go through books of the Bible, and we're setting up a, a new book that we're going to start today. It's uh, Samuel, First and Second Samuel, or Samuel uh, is what we're going to call it, or what the, the Bible calls it, depending on uh, which version you're in, First and Second Samuel, or in the Hebrew Bible, it's Samuel. I um, want to do a quick announcement first for, uh, regarding uh, Nashville and tornadoes there and the effort um, to let you know that <clears throat> we, we have a group that we work with called PAR, which is Prepare and Respond. Um, and, yep, there we go. And so you can go to parforthecause.org to look up. If you're interested in going on trips up there to help with disaster relief, if, if you know how to work equipment and things like that, they have trainings. Um, and so this is kind of a way to volunteer. We just send you to their website. Uh, they went last, this past weekend. They've taken a trip. They've got more trips planned for this week and the, the coming weeks to go. Um, and, of course, if you don't know what PAR is, it was birthed out of the, uh, the uh, 2011 tornadoes that happened right here. And so from that, uh, we try to help everybody else that has to go through that. So just a little update on how we're doing that and, and how you can uh, jump in and be part of that. Um, uh, one more thing I want to throw out there just for you to be ready for is we're going to talk a little bit more extensively next, next week about maybe doing some prayer and fasting as a church uh, up until the Easter time. And we're going to maybe zero in on the three uh, like our global and our regional and our local visions um, and have them kind of co- coincide together as we pray and fast and talk about what that looks like and that that is uh, and should be a normal, normative thing. All right, so First Samuel is where we're going to start out of First and Second Samuel. It's a good way to start, isn't it? you got to start at the beginning. Um, I don't know if you spent a lot of time in First Samuel, but there are a ton of stories. And if you haven't ever even cracked the book, you'll be fine. We're going to tell you the stories, and we're going to tell you the significance of them. Um, there are stories like this. This is ones I got growing up with a flannel board, right? Uh, Hannah is uh, dealing with infertility. She's unable to have children, and Samuel is a miracle. Um, Samuel is dedicated by his mom to the temple. He just kind of lives uh, in, in, in the house of the Lord. Uh, we've got God calling Samuel as a child, and they're like, is it, is it you, Samuel? And he goes to Eli. Is it, are you calling me? And, and so we hear God speaking to Samuel. Um, we have Saul chosen as the first king who stood a very handsome man and stood ahead above everybody else, right? We've got David and Goliath, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. We have the, the rise of, of David as king, David and Bathsheba, all kinds of stories that come out of the book of Samuel. And some people think, yeah, that's real, real people and that's real history. I get that. And some people think, they, they won't say it. But they think, why bother? How does that affect me? I mean, that's good. those are good stories, right? Those are, I love knowing those stories. But it's kind of like reading a history book. What do you do with that other than not repeating it in these areas and this area, right? Why would we bother spending that much time in the Old Testament? I'm so glad you asked that question. That is what today is about. So, Let's start, so that I'm just not giving you good reasons I think we should do it. Let's start with see what the Bible has to say about that. All right, so let's turn and see what Paul says first. We're going to start, I'm just going to do a quick overview of some verses, right? So Romans 15, verse 14, this is Paul talking. He says this, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that, we, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So number one, that you might have hope through the encouragement of the Scriptures. When he says the Scriptures, he means the Old Testament. That was his Scriptures at the time, 
All right? So that's what Paul kind of says there. Let's see what's going on in Acts chapter 28, verse 23. This is Paul teaching again, but Luke is the one writing the book of Acts. So listen. Verse 23 says, And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. That's Paul. They came to Paul's lodging. He was in Rome at the time. And he says, From morning till evening, all day. You think this sermon's long. All day. Right? Thank you for that one person that heard that. All right. Uh, all, all day, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. Where from? Both from the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the law of Moses, and from the prophets, Samuel, right? And so he's like, he's, he's concerning Jesus, convincing them of Jesus, going to the scriptures, specifically what Moses wrote and the prophets. All right, let's keep going. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is, teaching, uh, is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That was actually our memory verse a few months ago. So that the man of God may be a woman of God, man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we know that that is useful, beneficial, necessary. But what does Jesus say? That's what, that's what we're here for, right? What is, how does Jesus, how does the gospel, how does that get to the center of why we're here? So we turn to John 5, 39. And so Jesus is speaking to Pharisees about their extensive knowledge of the Scriptures. And he says, you search the Scriptures. And, and that word search there, when used in that context and in that culture, is, they would use that word to go search for a missing child. That's how extensively they search the Scriptures, right? And so he says, you search, you religious types, research the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and as they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So there is a way to search the scriptures and not have life, and there is a way to search the scriptures and have life. Which one do we want to do? We want to have life. Okay, that's why we're doing what we're doing. Luke 24, 44. I will belabor the point for a moment. This is right after the Emmaus Road, which, if you don't know what that is, that's after Jesus is resurrected. And he appears on the road to two guys that are talking, and they're like talking about the events and, and, uh, that happened when Jesus was raised from the dead and the resurrection. And Jesus says, hey, what's going on? And they're like, have you not heard? Are you not the, have you, you're the only person that's never heard of this. And then he, he proceeds to explain to them the scriptures, and they said their hearts burned within them. And then later he shows up where his disciples are all huddled together, and he says this in verse 44, or it says this. And Jesus says, he appeared to his disciples in verse 44. He says, then he said to them, the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. What, what words, Jesus? That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the whole Old Testament. If you know the Hebrew Bible, you'll know that it's divided up into three parts. There's the, the law, right? And then there's the, the, uh, the prophets, and then there's the writings, and the shorthand version of the writings is the Psalms, because it's the first book of the whole section. And so when, when you hear, hey, the Psalms, that means the writings. That's got like uh, uh, all the songs and, and the prophets, uh, not the prophets and not the histories, but kind of Psalms, Proverbs, Lamentations, all that kind of stuff going on in there. And that's the way that they divide that up. Now, so Jesus is saying that it testifies about me. It's about me. It points to me. My... Uh, Favorite movie of all time growing up, you know, I was four years old when I saw it, was Star Wars. It was the first movie I ever saw. And so I go into the theater, and this is an amazing experience, and I watch it, and I'm, I'm changed as a four-year-old, right? I'm just, I'm changed. 
And then Empire Strikes, come, Empire Strikes comes back out. That's three years later. That's 1980. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm seven. I'm in first grade, you know, and I'm, I'm going through that. And, and you see that. And I, spoiler alert coming. And so what happens is what you learn is that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. I know, I know you're, I, I see you, Whitney, and you're like, what? Uh, and I know that's sarcasm, and I appreciate that. But as a seven-year-old, that is epic-making. Like, it is Copernican revolution. It is like, you are different. And, and what happens is you go back and you watch Star Wars that changed your life for the first time, and you have this knowledge, and you watch Star Wars again, and you, you see it afresh for the first time. Like, you're like, that was his dad the whole time? And, and everything is just like you see it, like it's new and it's different, but it's the same thing that you knew the story to. But now you know that it's Luke's dad is doing all this. This is amazing on a whole new level, right? That's the way I felt. That's the way it kind of washed over me. You can't unknow that Darth Vader is Luke's dad. You just can't undo that. And in a similar way, when we read First and Second Samuel, we have Jesus in mind, very similarly, because the weight of the whole book of Samuel draws us to Jesus. The whole freight of what's, what's being put down there draws us, helps us to see his beauty and his glory and his splendor and his majesty and helps us see where we fit into his story, not where he fits into our story. It's his story, and we are part of it in there. It's for us. Now, we're studying First and Second Samuel to know Jesus better. That's what we're doing, is to be changed by him, to, be, to learn how to read the Bible in such a way that it glorifies Jesus, all of the Bible. How are you going to do that? I'm so glad you asked, right? So to use a little bit of an illustration, I talked about my little, little pickup truck last week. I had 325,000 miles in that baby. So that's going to be kind of our, our uh, metaphor for today, all right? And so our point number one is going to be look back. And so you're going to look in the rearview mirror and see everything behind us as we drive. And then we're going to have point two is going to be look around as it's preparing us for the book of Samuel, where we are uh, on the timeline. And then point three is going to be look ahead. Look at what's in front of us, and here's where we're going for Samuel. So we're laying an overview uh, of Samuel today. So let's start at the beginning and bring ourselves up to the point in history where the book actually takes place in Samuel. We start with, where's a good place to start? Okay, the beginning, right? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the word, no, that's John 1, sorry. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? All right, so God made everything. That's how we're going to start this. And he made it, and it was good. And there was, there was plants and animals and mountains and seas, and it was gorgeous. And he had Adam and Eve, and they were in a garden that was made for them to display God's glory, for them to take, to be satisfied, for them to walk with him. They had a relationship with God that was good. They walked with him in the cool of the day. Ah, I love that. I want to just stay there, but it doesn't happen like that. There's a tree in the garden, and Adam and Eve were told not to eat of this tree, and they did not trust God. They disobeyed God. They thought the tree had something better for them. God was holding out on them. They knew better. Let me just try this tree and see if this is really what we should or shouldn't do, and I will decide what's best for my life in my own kingdom, and so they did that, and when they sinned, when they disobeyed God, that was called sin, 
And that's, that's choosing your own way, independence from God, and then we're broken off from God, and sin entered the world, and death followed sin, and our world has not recovered from it since. And that's where the brokenness in the world comes from, from relationships to nature, uh, from disease and death and war and crime, evil, uh, the whole thing. That's where all of that came from. But in Genesis 3, we also get the first promise, the first covenant, uh, and we hear from God specifically in Genesis 3.15 where he promises to send one who will crush the head of the serpent, of the evil one, and he will make everything that has become sad, he will make it untrue. He will correct everything, make everything wrong, right. And so the Bible is from Genesis 3.15 on forward looking for the one. Who's going to do that? Who's it going to be? Where are we going to look? We're looking forward. And so then we have Noah born, and, and we have, that doesn't work out in the flood, and so the flood and the lands are all cleansed again. And, and we, have, we have the patriarchs because the Tower of Babel happens after the flood. It's just they're not going to get it. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying, spreading out over the earth and spreading his glory, they have, hey, they're like, hey, Genesis 11, we got a good idea. Why don't we all come together? And we'll build a, 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 a tower to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. I'm like, that's the exact opposite of what you were just told to do. That's how we roll. We keep doing it over and over and over. You see pattern, pattern, pattern. And God says, here, I'm going to make a covenant with a family, with a person. And we see the patriarchs enter with Abraham in Genesis 12. And God says, I'm going to bless you, and, and I'm going to bless you and your family, and therefore all the families of the earth, because through you is going to come the one. And so we start following the patriarchs. And, and from Abraham, who was blessed to be a blessing, um, we, we have the son of promise, Isaac. Um, and I, we, we went through the book of Genesis, so I'm not going to go into detail, but Isaac. And then we have Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And those 12 sons uh, have became 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes followed Joseph down into Egypt. And they're there, and they proliferate to go to be from one family to two and a half million people. Right, 400 years that they're in captivity and slavery under Pharaoh in, in, in Egypt. And so after 400 years, they've been looking for a deliverer in Exodus 2. It says they, they cried out to the Lord, and it says the Lord saw them at the end of chapter 2. And, and his response to their crying out and him seeing them is to send a deliverer in Moses. Moses delivers them out, uh, and, and kind of a co-regent, with a vice-regent with, with the Lord, leading the people out. And they come out through the Red Sea, and they go to the, the foot of Mount Sinai, and they're given the law, and there's this covenant of God and his people, this marriage ceremony of you are mine, and I am yours, and we're going to be together, and I'm going to be with you again, and, and here's the way to live. Here's the law. I saved you after, and, and now I saved you, and now I'm going to give you the law. I didn't say, here's the law, and then I'll save you when you leave up to it. Here's the law. Here's how you should live. I have saved you. Therefore, live this way. You're, you will be my people. And, and so there's this, this moment where he's like, uh, the, the tabernacle is now uh, a thing, and God is dwelling again with his people, among his people. When they move, he moves. And he's called them to go to the promised land so they can be God's people in God's place under God's rule. Kind of like the garden. Exactly like the garden. Except the garden that fills the earth. But they sin because they send scouts out. Ten of them to, to look at the promised land. They're like, oh, no, we're like grasshoppers. We're, we'll never make it. We, we can't win. And only <clears throat> Caleb and Joshua come back and say, no, the Lord said, we can do this. And so they, they turn, and, and they don't believe. And so as a response to that, they wander for 40 years in the wilderness. We know the story, and they're provided bread uh, on the, or, or manna. What is it on the ground? And only God feeds them. Deuteronomy 2, we learn that, that every day they were, that God provided for them. 
so that we would learn that we don't live by bread alone, but by the word that proceeds from the Father, from, from God. We need spiritual nourishing as much as we need physical nourishing. So they wander for 40 years until the first generation dies out and the next generation is raised up and they're on the plains of Moab and they're looking into the promised land and, and Moses is still there. And so as by reminder, we get the book of Deuteronomy. So that was Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And then Deuteronomy is when they get, the, that means the second law. And so you get the law again, and you're going in. Do not make the mistake that your fathers and mothers made. And and here's the law again. And remember, that you didn't earn this law to get God's favor. God put his favor on you. So therefore, live this way as you go out because he has made you a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19, 6, you are a kingdom of priests. You are to show the world what it looks like to be in relationship with the one true God. That is why you are to live this way is to show the world it's a missionary God heart. It's for the nations. And so we get the book of Deuteronomy. And so they're entering into the land. And Moses dies. He doesn't go into the land. Joshua uh, is studying under Moses and kind of he takes up the mantle and he ushers them in in the book of Joshua. And Joshua is mainly a book of conquest and wars and victories for the most part. And they're learning how to trust the Lord. And then the 12 tribes take various geographical regions and they set up the loose federation of nation-states at the time, and these are God's people now and God's place and his promised place under God's rule, but it doesn't last long. How long does it last, you ask? Until Joshua dies. I mean, that, that's it. That was, that was your opening scripture this morning that, was, that, that Leah read. It says, And Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnatheras, in the hill country of Ephraim north of the mountain of Gosh, and all that generation also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, this is the next generation, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How does that happen? Especially after all that Moses said in Deuteronomy. It's what we read when children are dedicated, Deuteronomy 6. You should know the statutes of the Lord when you lie down and when you rise up, when you get up, when you walk in the way. I mean, it's always there. It should be always before us. And so they enter a time of turning away from the Lord and toward false gods. And the Lord allows their enemies to suppress his people. And we fall into this cycle to where um, the people fall into sin. They turn from the Lord. They do what was right in their own eyes. And then their enemies come in and they suppress them. And then they cry out to the Lord, help, save us. And then the Lord turns, he, he, he hears their cry, and he sends uh, salvation in the form of a judge or a, a, a military ruler or a general and delivers them again, and then they get comfortable. They got, Lord, if you'll just do this, then we'll be okay, and then they get okay, and then they forget what they promised the Lord, and there's this cycle. It doesn't do this. It does this, and it gets worse and worse and worse into a bloody, chaotic, dark era of time in the people of God. It lasts about 300 years. After that comes, well, that's when the book of Judges is happening. Because right after and during the time of the Judges is when Samuel is written. And it's addressing that time. And it's a time full of brokenness. Men abusing women. We see stories of wives betrayed by husbands, children going wild, poor parenting, corrupt religious leaders, murder and cover-up, deceitful politicians, power struggles, the horrors of war. We see what happens when we turn from God. It's what sin looks like up close. It's just not afraid to tell us all the ugly details. 
our theology for the next however long we're in this book will come in the form of stories. That's the way the histories tell us our theology is it tells us stories. It's a time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes and they had a disregard for the Lord. They didn't even enter, he did not even enter into their thought processes of how should we then live. And outside of his gracious intervention and help, our sin will destroy us even as we pursue it. That's what we learn. I want that. I want that. Oh, that's killing me. That's killing me. I want it. Ah. That's why I think there's a lot of overlap in our modern world. And we will find help and hope in the pages of Samuel. Now, that was a look back. That was a rearview mirror. All right, so I hope we're all up to date. We know where we are. It's a dark time. This is when the book of Ruth was kind of written around this time. Um, And actually, in the Hebrew Bible, after um, we have, uh, let's see, Joshua, Judges, Ruth is in the English, but it's in front of uh, Psalms in the Hebrew Bible. And the Hebrew Bible goes straight from Judges into Samuel. All right? And so it's just kind of following. It doesn't care so much about chronology as it does about theme. All right? And so it's putting these themes together. Now, Samuel, the book of Samuel takes place about 3,000 years ago. So this is a, a culture that is very far removed from what we understand, right? And, and it's, there's this, it's an honor-shame culture instead of a guilt-and-innocence culture like we have. Well, was he guilty? Did he do it? And then we just kind of ha- hover there, and everything's about whether or not our, our understanding of justice is done. And that's not the way they really saw things. Um, it's more of uh, shame and not individual, not rugged individualism, but but community, but everything, is it going to bring, is, is doing this going to bring shame on my family, or is not doing this going to keep shame from coming to my family? Because whatever that is, I want to do that. I don't want any shame coming on me, and I want to remove shame as much as possible. That, that's their central focus, is shame and honor. How do we avoid shame? How do we get honor? Okay? And so you're going to see things as we read these books that are going to go, oh, what is going on? And it's because we, we don't understand. We, we're just thinking through the lens of guilt and innocence. And so we're, we're going to talk about that as we go. I just want you to be ready for that. Samuel is the last judge, and he's most oftenly referred to as a prophet, which he also was. And he's going to be God. Uh, he's there during the time when God's people are transitioning from the period of the judges to a monarchy or to kings, where kings are going to rule the people. There are four main characters in the book. Uh, chapter 1 and 2, we see Hannah. And then chapters 1 through 7, we see Samuel. He's kind of the king maker, anointer. Um, then we see Saul, and then we'll see David. All right, We'll see the, the rise and fall of Saul, the rise of David, and the reign of David through the end of 2 Samuel. All right, now, let's look ahead. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today, because that's what, I, that's what we said at the beginning. So the focus today is how... I want us to learn how to study the, the book of 1 Samuel. That's what we're going to talk about. It. We must learn to read the Old Testament as a Christian rather than a Hebrew. And, well, of course. I'm like, I know, but there's a lot in that. <laughs> All right, we've got to learn. What does that mean? Um, said another way, uh, we've got to learn to read the Bible from front to back and from back to front at the same time. All right, and so both are important. Front to back, when you read it front to back, that means we start in Genesis and we, we go through Revelation in that order, and we discover who God is and, and that he deserves allegiance and all worship. We learn all the major stories and people and themes in Israel, Israel's history and how that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. 
Right? We watch it unfold. And we see that Jesus is the goal of where the Bible is going. Right? That's front to back. But we also read it back to front. That means that once we see Jesus in the New Testament, right, we can revisit the stories of the Old Testament in light of Jesus and see he was always already there. Right? Remember, think Darth Vader. Right? He was always Luke's father, even though you didn't know it. And because he was always Luke's father, that changed the story for us. The story didn't change, but our understanding, our comprehension, the depth of it does. All right, so we see that Jesus is at creation where everything is made through him, by him, and through him, and for him. John 1 tells us that. We see the Bible says that he leads the people out of Exodus and Jude, that he was the rock in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10, bringing water to his thirsty people. He is the true and better judge, prophet, priest, king. All of the weight of Samuel will push us towards Jesus, whether it's the fact that the example that we see for a priest in Eli and his sons is not good and we long for a better priest, or you see, boy, sometimes I can see how that king over all the people, that would be Jesus, and one day that's going to be fulfilled. He is the temple. He is the better sacrifice. Jesus is the all in all. This is how we discover the plan for the rule and reigning of the coming king. Now, with that said, that kind of sets up how to read the Old Testament, there are some distinct ways not to read the Old Testament, right? I mean, so, and there are mistakes that I've made. I still make them. Um, and I just want to point those out um, so we can talk about them. We'll call them pitfalls. How about that? There are three, we'll just talk about three. There's a lot more than that, but we'll hit three today. Uh, the first one is we could view it only, we could view First Samuel and studying it only as a history lesson. Data to learn about people who knew God. Let me learn this. Let me do a character study and, and, and learn these things, and I will know that. I'll be good at Bible trivia, and I've got that. And many people, in fact, I've got a friend, graduated seminary, can read Hebrew, can read Greek, memorize more scripture than I ever will, and yet he's an atheist. Not helpful. You can know the scriptures, you can search the scriptures like the Pharisees did in a way that does not lead to life. We do not want to do that. We want Jesus to show us how do, we, how do we read these stories? How do we study the Old Testament that gets to the heart of what's going on and not just gets lodged in, in the head? Why is this here? Those are good questions to ask and to struggle through. Number two, first one, we can just read it as history alone. Second, we can make the mistake of moralism. That's when we just look at stories of the Bible and we try to emulate that behavior on our own, in our own flesh, in our own strength. I kind of grew up like that, and it's tricky because it's not all wrong. Sometimes we, we should do that. Right? You should be like David here, not here, you know, right? And, and, and I'm like, ah, oh, what, what do you mean? So quick, quick example. I had a flannel board when we were growing up, and like, if you don't know what that is, that's like some material that you put on there, and it kind of tells a story. It's kind of like Bob Ross on painting, but it's like pieces of material. You'll tell a little story, put a little cloud up. You know, it's, it's, very, it's very nice. It worked really good when I was five. And um, if you don't know, just Google that later. <laughs> That'll be fun. Um, so I'd have these stories, and it was like, all right, be like David. Because he was brave, and he, and he trusted God when he killed Goliath. And we all have giants in our lives, and we must trust God to defeat them like he did. Okay? That's not 
untrue. We should trust God, and we do have big things in our lives. But it misses the heart. It misses the bigger picture of the greater story of what's going on, the bigger narrative of what God's story is, right? Yes, there's certainly good in it. But remember, the Bible was not, it was written for us, for us, not for you, but for us collectively as a people. And it was written for us, not to you, not to us. So see the difference that the Bible is written for us, not to us. It was written to the people of Samuel's day, the people in the first century. It was written to the people it was written to. And so we have to start there and then extract from that. What does that mean for us? That's what we're going to be learning. Because if you don't, what it does, if you think the Bible is written to you, it puts you at the center of the story and everything's about you and you're in the middle of it. And that's, that's going to be an error. <laughs> that's going to be a problem, right? Because um, it's like, well, it's about me. No. The story is always about God. It's his story. And our stories intersect his stories. Our stories are found and drawn up into his story. If you share your story in the mystical community, you're like, all right, I had, a, I had a, a creation, a fall, and a redemption, and restoration. All right, how did that happen in your life? Because that's the overarching story. Now, where, where did that happen in your life? Where does that happen in the Bible? The story is always about God. So, when am I supposed to be like David then? When am I not supposed to be like David? I mean, there's this time he took the census, and that was, that was, definite, that was not good. When do I know not to, to do that? When do I know, you know, and some, you get confused. What about Abraham? What about Moses? What about Samson? There's definitely some times you need to be like them. There's definitely some times you do not need to be like them. And so knowing that Jesus said the prophets were testifying, testifying about him leads us to see that the true king of Israel See, think of David and Goliath. The true king of Israel is slaying the great enemy of God's people, which is sin, which has left them paralyzed and afraid to live. He does it by himself and against all odds, and he walks up, and he looks like this little kid, and he just, you know, there's no way this can happen. He walks up to the giant single-handedly, slays, and cuts off the head of the enemy to everybody's surprise. This is exactly what Jesus does on the cross. Who's this guy of Nazareth? What good comes out of Nazareth? doesn't look like he can do anything. And he defeats sin and death, just like God said from Genesis 3.15. It's looking ahead and reading the Bible from back to front. This is how we are to read the Old Testament as a Christian. The last way, if you're thinking, yeah, I got that. That's, we hear that every week, Jamie. Ah, here's one that, that might be helpful. The last way is that you only see it as a gospel lesson without transformation. That we read and we yearn for the Holy Spirit to transform us more into the image of Jesus, to make us more deep, deeper worshipers and displayers of grace. But it doesn't. It's just an extended history lesson with prophetic implications. That's not enough. It just makes you sound smarter. There's no life change. That's why we're reading. It's about an internal work of the Spirit in our hearts rather than just learning how uh, here's a set of information and if I can slowly over time kind of fix myself, then I'll, I'll be okay. That's called behavior modification. That's called religion. There's no life in that. 
And so that, that's, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about moving from death to life, to have your heart turned upside down. We have a real love for Jesus and a hate for sin, and you want to move toward holiness, and, and you love it when you do, and you hate it when you don't, and you're at a war inside, and there's a fight for faith in your, your heart. That's Christianity. That means there's something different about you, that you want to love people that, that don't love you back, and you're able to do that sometimes, and you, you're a struggle when you are, and you're, you're like, Jesus calls us to love his enemies. I'm like, oh, I don't like that. I don't even like that. My boss, my goodness, how can you call me to love? And, and you're called to do things that you don't. How do, how do I do that? Ah, that's right. Love your enemies. Rejoice when you're persecuted. What? This is Christianity. You're called to do things that you can't do on your own, that you can only do through the power of God. Parenting. There's one that just came to mind. Same thing, right? It's about caring about the things of God more than what our flesh desires. Because we cannot just will ourselves into wanting holiness and being like Jesus and loving our enemies and laying down our lives and, and giving up our treasures and our time. We don't just naturally gravitate toward that. Romans 12, 2 says this, do not, this is Paul talking, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So not being conformed to the world, but being transformed, metamorphosis, metamorphosized, right? A, a whole new being it's, that comes from beholding Jesus from the gaze of your soul upon his majesty and splendor and beauty, finding him and his truth in the Bible and then experiencing the Holy Spirit, change our hearts to know him more deeply and therefore love him more intimately, to walk with him in the cool of the day like they did in the garden. You are no longer separated from him, but you have access to that. Do we walk in such a way that displays that? I know I want to. I know I do sometimes. I know I don't always. That, that's the answer to the question, why bother? While we're studying Samuel, we want to know Jesus more than anything. We want to be changed by him, and we want everybody else to know about it. Now, we've seen how to read the Old Testament a little bit and how not to read it. So let's look at how we're going to plan on reading Samuel. There are four questions that we can ask that will help us read from back to front and front to back. All right, And we're going to leave these on, on the screen uh, up until our prayer directive. So if you want to write those down, It'd be great. I would advise you, you know, hey, revisit these. Ask these, how do they help? Number one, what does the passage mean to its original hearers? All right, we kind of talked about that a little bit. This is a different culture. And so what did it mean to the people it was actually written to? It was, a, it was kind of a, a history, right? What did it mean to them? Not to me. What did it mean to them? And then number two, how does this connect to Jesus and the gospel? So every story that we're going to read is not going to be Oh, that's Jesus in the story. Oh, that's Jesus over there. It's not, as Dave Baker says, finding Waldo in the Old Testament. All right, so we're not going to just do that. What we're saying is the whole freight, the weight of the stories coalesce, and sometimes it's more obvious, sometimes it's not, and they all draw us to Jesus and his beauty and his glory and his, his majesty in the story because what we see is there's a better temple, a better sacrifice, a better king, a better prophet, a better priest right? That he is the fulfillment of all the broken models of what the Old Testament is trying to get across to its people. But they, they don't get it, and they keep doing it themselves. 
that he fulfills that. Number three, what does it mean for my relationship with God? So how does it connect to Jesus and the gospel? And then what does it mean for my relationship with God? Finally, what does it mean for my relationship with others? So my relationship with God is vertical, and then my relationship with others is horizontal. How do we behave? What are our actions because of that? How do we treat others? What happens? What is Christian living? So now there's certainly more questions that you could ask. This is just a good starting place that we're studying the word, expecting the Holy Spirit to transform us. For God to do a powerful work, not just in us as individuals, but in us as a community moving forward. Now, we've got to use all the questions, though. You can't just use one. If you just use question one, you're like, well, that's good. What did it mean to the original hearers? You're smarter, but it's just a history lesson. Right? It's just a story to add to all the stories that you've learned. If you just do question one, and you skip questions two and three, and you do question four... You go straight from learning information, and you do an end around on your heart. You cut the heart out, and you just go do, and you go straight to your behavior. And that's the way most of us kind of do. That's how you get moralism. That's how you get behavior modification. Hey, just do this. This is what we read. We need to be like this, so just go do this. And if you do it hard enough, long enough, fast enough, you think, oh, my heart will catch up. There's no transformation. It's a, a physical, it's a mechanical change, not an organic change, right? And so we bypass and skip over the process of the heart. And sadly, many Christians, myself included, live this way. We don't experience what Jesus calls abundant life. We think that if we just change our behavior to look these ways and check all this stuff and have this uh, amount of quiet time, these many verses give this much money away, then this is Christianity. Big whoop. This is hard. Yes. P.S. Not Christianity. <laughs> that, that's a lie. That is religion. And that's why you find death there. Because that's what it is. That's what it has to offer. The smell of decay comes from death. So if you look around and you find out that's where you are, ask some more questions. Because you cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit with your own efforts. It's not possible. You can make it look like that for a little while but it won't last. Number three, uh, and, and finally, if you can answer, you answer questions one and two, but you do not go to question three, you've just got a gospel les lesson. There's no transformative power in our lives. It's, the, it's what we, we called it the extended history lesson with a prophetic implication. You just seem smarter because you're connecting Jesus to the Old Testament, and it's just an, an extended uh, Mental exercise. That, that's all that we've got there. Our heart has not been interacted and changed, and we're the same people. Now, why are you telling me all this? Well, because this is how we're going to read Samuel. Let me give you an example. This, this is how I've learned to think over the years. Um, so I was in Nepal. It was a few weeks ago. And I was reading through the CBR, our community Bible reading. And we were in 2 Samuel chapter 18, and there's a story of Absalom. If you don't know who Absalom is, I'm about to tell you. All right, so Absalom is King David's son. So he's a son. King David loves him some Absalom. He loves that kid. Absalom loves Absalom. And Absalom is infatuated with his ambition to rule over the people. He wants to be king. David loves Absalom. Absalom wants to use David. That's, that's kind of the setup. That's where we're coming from. 
right? And so Absalom and his cunning and, 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 and sitting out on the street corner and he kind of gets people to start listening to him and he'd say things, man, if I were king, I'd do it this way. Oh, I see your problems over there. Nobody's listening to you. I will listen to you. And if I were king, here's what I would do. But I am not king. But I am not king. And he, and he kind of got the people's support. And the next thing you know, he's usurping his father's kingdom through military warfare. David has got to flee for his life with a few people to get out to save his life. And so David's son has overtaken David. David's on the run, and he's kicked out of his city. And that's where a lot of the Psalms come from. A lot of them come from Saul chasing him, and a lot of them come from Absalom. Most of the Psalms that are written are lamentations. We're going to talk about that when we go through this series too. We don't know how to do that anymore. Here's what happens, though. David's heart for his son never changed. Even though he committed treason against him and it was punishable by death, and Absalom, in, in essence, is saying, I wish you were dead so I could have your place. It's kind of the prodigal son, but it's on a royal level. Absalom was then, but, but Absalom was killed in battle. I don't know if you know the story, he was riding his mule and he's got like this amazing hair that he has to cut off every year, weighs like 75 pounds or something like that. I don't know the actual conversion rate. I know it's very heavy, right? And so uh, uh, you can Google that later too, not now. And then so his hair got caught up in the tree and he's like hanging by his hair, you know, just kind of, hey, there he is. Anybody want to kill this dude? <laughs> and so Joab goes, yeah, sure, three spears, wham! And he dies in battle. And when his father, King David, found out this is what I was reading that morning in the Paul. 2 Samuel 18, verse 33 says this. Here's David's response. It's not, yes, my enemy has been defeated. His response is, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? See the heart there? Now, I've read that story a bunch since I was a kid, and it never occurred to me that this points to Jesus. To me, it was an obscure Old Testament story that I mainly use for Bible trivia. But let's ask those four questions again and see if it changes it for us. See if the Holy Spirit's going to work. What did the passage mean to his original hearers? King David is lamenting the death of his son whom he loves so much. Oh, Absalom, Absalom. He wishes he could have given his life to save his son, but he's too late. He's powerless to do anything now, and all he has in front of him is the ability to grieve. That's the context. That's what the original hearers heard. How does this connect to Jesus in the gospel? If you will remember when Jesus comes into town in Jerusalem and he's coming to, to lay his life down at the cross and he says what? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How I would have longed to gather you as children under, underneath me together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. You see that, that heart? Come to me. I'm the only way. You're not going to turn, and my heart is breaking, and I long for you to come, but you're not going to come, and it's going to be 8070, and Titus is going to come, and the temple is going to be raised, and the people, this is going to get bad. Come. I long for you to, to be saved. He's echoing King David's heart. King Jesus' heart for his people echoes King David's heart for his son. Okay, question three. What does that mean for my relationship with God? Jesus is like David in that he wants his children to thrive and to come home to a restored relationship with their father. He loves them deeply, even though they have rebelled. But Jesus is not like 
King David. Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came after us in our sin, right? He, 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 he came after us. He left his palace. He left heaven. He left perfection. He left his throne. Jesus didn't send for us to come. He didn't wait until we proved ourselves loyal to the cause first. Rather than like David say, would I have died instead of you? He did die instead of us so that we wouldn't be punished and that we are free to be in a relationship with a true king that has been intended since the garden and fulfilled Genesis 3.15. You see how that's a story? And the stories, all the little stories are in the big story and the little story is pulled up into the big story. And it's all in there. That we're forgiven of our rebellion against the king and of our intent to set up our own kingdom, to choose the tree. Instead, we're welcome to dine at the king's table. That's the gospel. That's where it is. (laughs) Question four. What does that mean for my relationship with others? I got this, I understand that changes my relationship with God. Why does it change my relationship with other people? Since we've been freely forgiven, though we don't deserve it, we can freely forgive others who have hurt us and don't deserve it. What needs to change in you? As you read the Bible like that, your understanding of the Word, what needs to change in your heart? It's through recognizing what Jesus did for us that we were able to extend that to others. And my behavior, my actions are changed because my heart has been transformed. That is why we're going through Samuel. So let's pray together. Worship team can come on up. If you are new, what we do is we hear the gospel through song. We hear it through prayers. We hear it from the word. And we take it at the Lord's Supper every week. Why do you take the Lord's Supper every week? Oh, we love it. (laughs) We love it. It is a picture of the gospel. So let's pray two things. Pray that like on the, uh, the Emmaus Road, that we would see how the scriptures are about Jesus and that our hearts would burn within us to see him. And number two, pray for Nashville, that Jesus would get glory through how we are meeting needs like he did. So let's pray for a couple of minutes. I'll start praying to close us up. If you're still praying, just keep praying. That's great. And then I'll lead us in the Lord's Supper.